I think we realized we were taking a risk this morning. There's always a risk in simplicity. You strip away the the rhythmic drums and the clashing cymbals. You you take away the the bass guitar and the the rich fill of the piano and the and the guitar and and you're left with each other. The sound of each other singing, the sound of each other breathing. Uh, and you're left with the words. Beautiful, powerful words. Some new, some decades or centuries old. That's the purpose, of course. Uh, that's part of the purpose of the entire season of Lent. If you can strip enough away that what remains comes into clear focus. For, for that reason, for centuries, churches would actually whitewash their sanctuaries. They would take away all distractions. It was for that reason that we have some of those strange conversations and questions during Lent. Should I, should I give up coffee? Should I eat more fish? Should I not eat chocolate? And, and really the questions themselves on their own sound small, and they are too small. But the bigger question is, what is it that we want to bring to the forefront during the season? Part of the struggle for us, of course, is that we view the events of Good Friday and Easter morning through the rearview mirror as past history, as, as accomplished and, and finished. But you know, for centuries, God's people looked forward to what God would do with this mounting sense of excitement, actually almost desperation. God, God when? And we can't wait. And, and what hope was filled with their songs? as they anticipated the intervention of God. And God's people were singing songs about what would happen on Good Friday and Easter for centuries before Jesus was born. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at some of those songs. You just read one of them. Whether you realize it or not, what you read were song lyrics recorded in the book of Isaiah. We're going to read a song next week from the Psalms. We're going to read from Zechariah on Palm Sunday These are the songs that have come from ages past that God can use to prepare us for our experience again this year. But into that moment of quiet and simplicity, I'm going to invite you one more time as we seek the voice of God. Will you join me as we pray? God, these ancient words, would you bring them to life for us now? These powerful reminders of your work in history, anticipated and now fulfilled, but waiting to be real again in our lives. Would you make that happen? Move freely through the room and inhabit our conversations and our thoughts, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. This week I've been watching again one of those epic television miniseries from the 1980s. I should say I've been re-watching it. Believe it or not, there was a time when networks ruled the television airwaves, and there was no event more grand than one of those miniseries. Remember, they began on Sunday night for two hours, and they hooked you, and they ran every night. The budget for this one was $100 million in 1983. Can you imagine how much money that was. It's called The Winds of War. 
based on a novel by Herman Wouk. And it, it tells the story of two families and follows their journey in the years leading up to the onset of World War II right to the attack at Pearl Harbor. And yeah, it's kind of schmaltzy in retrospect. And it looks kind of goofy on our, on our TVs nowadays. And I'm sure it's driving my family crazy that it's, it's on in the background all the time. But the one thing it did manage to capture was the growing sense of despair and disillusionment that pervaded not just one or two, but all the nations of the earth that were drawn into this conflict. What happened in World War II, what happened not just on the battlefields or just in prison camps or in the the absolute horror of the Holocaust, but what happened in World War II is that the entire view of human nature that had pervaded for almost 200 years came crashing down. It was a very modern idea. It was a it was a, a, a very resplendent idea that, that human evil itself was a misnomer, that at best the mistakes of the world were a matter of, of poor decisions or lack of education or a bad family upbringing. And all of those optimistic approaches and understandings of what it meant to be human just came crumbling apart during the years of World War II. The mind-numbing cruelty, the, the violence at a scale never imagined, it raised two questions, and they came to absolute clarity in their focus. The first is, what is wrong with us as a race, as the human race? And then, just as importantly, what in the world are we going to do about it? If you go back several centuries, actually almost three millennia, you find in the lyrics of that song that you read together in Isaiah 53, a song that addresses those very two questions. What in the world is wrong with us? And whatever will we do about it? Now there's a lot of disagreement and uh, and discussion about the whole nature of the book of Isaiah. It's a long book. And, and what, it, what it means to read the book together. But this, this one thing is clear. That section from Isaiah 40, chapter 40, through to Isaiah chapter 55, was clearly written for a nation living in exile. Uh, facing all the stuff that well, that, that mini-series of war and remembrance and the winds of war was dealing with, but, but the ongoing atrocities that are part of our world, captivity and imprisonment and injustice and refugees and then the largest mass migration of displaced people in the history of the planet, which has been going on now for over a decade. What is wrong with the human race? And what will we do about it? And here in Isaiah 53, there is an answer. Maybe the best answer, maybe the most famous answer that the Bible has to offer. And the answer is that God himself is stepping in. That God is doing something about it. And in doing something about it, he's sending someone. Who is he sending? The description is given rather cryptically. The servant of the Lord. I'm going to take a look at that text. If you don't already have your Bibles open, open them up. Find Isaiah chapter 53, or flip on your phones, or your iPads, whatever your device is. 
As we look at this text, we're going to back it up a few verses to the tail end of chapter 52 and all the way through 53. As we look at this incredible, incredible intervention of God in history under the, uh, under the title of this man, the servant of the Lord, we learn why he came. We learn what he did. And once you learn who he is and why he came and what he did, that's, that's pretty much all of it, right? So let's have a look, first of all, at who he is. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Right off the top, you see there, this, this intervention is, is, is introduced. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised up. He'll be lifted high. He'll be highly exalted. That's the same terminology that's used way back at the beginning of Isaiah. And you may not remember the verse and the reference, but in Isaiah chapter 6 is that famous scene of God sitting enthroned in his heaven, surrounded by all of these heavenly creatures, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Same language is being used here as what was used of God, high and lifted up, highly exalted. But here's the fascinating thing. The language here is being used to describe not just the transcendent majesty of God, the purity and perfection of the Lord, They're being attributed now to this person, the servant of the Lord. Now, here's what's really amazing. Have a look in chapter 53 at verse 1. You won't notice it right off the bat, but verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let me give you a little paraphrase of this. Who has believed our message is Isaiah's way of saying people are going to have a hard time believing this one, that this servant That this servant is the arm, is the Lord. Nobody's going to believe it. And here's why. That language, the arm of the Lord, isn't just a nice little metaphor that Isaiah comes up with on the spot. This, This is very specific, very definitive language. It's used throughout the book of Isaiah and throughout the ancient world. The arm of the Lord is God himself come into history to do something concrete. It was the arm of the Lord that divides, that parts the Red Sea. The arm of the Lord is God's strength. And it's God's strength being made manifest in the world. If it were the eye of the Lord, then maybe we'd be talking somehow about the knowledge or the foresight of God. But the arm of the Lord is the power of God. Not just strength in general, but God's power in history. And no wonder Isaiah is saying, look, People are not going to believe this at first. Nobody is going to believe that this is the arm of the Lord at work, that this is the omnipotent God at work in history. One of the things that draws me to this passage, this song in the book of Isaiah 53, is that it deals absolutely with essentials. In fact, the more we strive to understand who this is and why, why he came and what he did, the more all of the irrelevant peripheral matters just fall away and we're left only with the essentials. You know, it was, I don't know, maybe this is taking some of you back to your school days or university days. It was Aristotle, remember philosopher Aristotle, who came up with this great distinction between what's essential and what is accidental. For example, if you had never seen clay or steel before, and I put in front of you a lump of clay, a ball of clay, and then a steel I-beam. And I said, 
What's the difference between clay and steel? You could say, well, clay is round and steel is long. And that may be true, but that's just kind of accidental. That's not the essential difference, is it? Because clay can take on lots of different shapes, and steel can be forged or molded into different shapes. What's essential is its hardness or its softness, its, its chemistry, its composition. That's the essential. What is the essence of Christianity? Well, you say Christianity leads people to love one another. Yeah, that, that might be true, but there are lots of people that love each other. That's not necessarily a Christian distinctive. Well, maybe Christianity gives you strength, it gives you peace, it makes you good. Yeah, but, but those things too are accidental. That doesn't mean they're accidents, but they're not the essential because they overlap with lots of other people who try to be strong or try to have peace or try to do good. What's the essential? Or to put it another way, what is the armness of Christianity? If this is the arm of the Lord, the servant is not the mouthpiece of the Lord. He is called the arm of the Lord. What is the essential? The servant is really a reference to or a song about Jesus himself. And you'll see that come into absolutely clear focus. And one of the things that that means is that Jesus did not come primarily to teach. Yeah, he was a teacher. He was a great teacher. But he didn't come primarily to teach and to tell people what to do. He came primarily to do something. The essential difference, really, between Christianity and every other religion or philosophical school out there is that Jesus doesn't come primarily to teach. All the other religious founders, you know, would say, I'm going to show you how to connect to God or to the divine or to higher reality. Do these things. Jesus says, I'm going to connect you to God. I've done it. To use Tim Keller's famous expression, Christianity is not so much good advice as it is good news about something that's happened. Whereas other founders may come with advice and say, hey, here's how you can change your lives. News means here's what's happened that will change your life. Let me maybe put it a different way. The stories of Christianity don't work unless they're true. You probably can't or shouldn't say that about other philosophies and worldviews and religions. For example, what is the purpose of Buddhism? What is Buddhism about? It's about enlightenment. It's a wonderful faith. It has lots of great stuff to teach us. It's about an attitude towards life, an attitude towards suffering, an attitude about not grasping for things and holding on to things. It's about working against the the kind of craving ego, this little monster inside of us. But all the stories about Buddha himself, does it matter whether they're true or not? Historians don't actually know, and most are convinced that Buddha himself probably didn't exist. But, but the teaching of Buddhism 
remains relevant whether the stories are true or not because they tell people how to find enlightenment, how to live. Think about Muhammad. Meaning no respect to anyone or any of the practice the faith of Islam. But the stories about Muhammad. What is Islam about? The word Islam means submission, doesn't it? Obedience. Not so much enlightenment, but obedience. And all the stories of Muhammad work in this way. Whether they are true or not, they show people what it looks like to submit. So they work. Now look at the stories of Christianity. Let's take, for example, the Christmas story. Remember, born in a manger? Okay. What is the moral of that story? Have natural childbirth? What's the moral? Homelessness is somehow okay? What's the moral? If it's not true, there is no moral center to that story. In fact, let's get a little bit closer to the point. Let's look at the story in front of us, the story of the cross. Jesus died on the cross for us. What's the moral of that story? Because if it's not true, think about it for a second. Because people will say, oh, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's inspiring. Really? I mean, think about this for just a minute. What really is the moral of the story if it's not true? Don't protect yourself. Just be a victim in the face of oppression and injustice. Just roll over. That's perverse. Let me try one other way of putting it. Imagine that I'm up on top of the CN Tower and you're there with me. And we're looking out over that deck where you can actually hang out there in the air. This new thing that they've got. And you say, Richard, I want to show you right now just how much I love you, how much I care for you. And you cut the harness as you say, watch, and then plummet to your death. And looking over the ledge, I may gaze down at you and, and I may say, look how much that person loved me. But more likely, I'm going to say there was something really, really wrong with you. Right? you did that. What if, though, what if, because I'm stupid or I'm a fool, I get way out there on the edge myself without the harness, and I'm about to fall off, and you jump out there and you push me to safety, but in doing so, you fall to your death. That's different, right? If the crucifixion, if the cross is something that actually happened in history, if it's true, It changes things. If what it really means is that the servant sung about centuries before has come to push you to safety, it changes everything. If it's not true, it's not just unimportant, it's actually dangerous. If the stories of Jesus aren't true, they work badly, they're perverse, they're they're pernicious. Unless the stories themselves are true, unless Jesus is the arm of God, the strength, the outworking of God's purpose, and not just the mouth, not just saying some nice things, it turns out Christianity is really pretty bad for you. Terrible, in fact. But it's one or the other. He is the arm of the Lord. 
God come to do what God would do. And what was that? Why did he come? And here again, we're getting at essences. Why did he come? The reason he came, have a look, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. There's a whole slew of great vocabulary here, a survey of almost every way to describe human evil. Look, you've got infirmities, you've got transgressions, you've got iniquities. By the way, of all the words, that's the one I'm most drawn to, the word iniquity. Because the the word there that that they're trying to translate into English, it's kind of a shame that this can't come across, but I understand how hard it is. The word itself means bent. That your life has become bent. It's not just that it doesn't work, it's just that you can't unbend it. Have you ever tried to straighten something once it's been bent? You just make a bigger mess of it? Or the more you work it, you actually get to the place where it breaks? That's humanity. And in the midst of all these interesting words, transgressions, iniquities, there's one expression that gets to the heart, to the essence of what's wrong with us. The answer to the question, what's wrong with us? Verse 6, very famous, but, but somewhat overlooked in this sense. Verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray, and each has turned to our own way. I mean, could that really be it? Is, is that the answer to the question of what's wrong? That's the definition of evil, of sin, really? My word, I mean, shouldn't we pick murder or rape or genocide or something like that? I mean, every little kid wants their own way. And that's precisely the point. What if this is part of the undeletable code, the microchip in the soul of every human being, that it can never be fully put out or put down? What if this is the essential? What if all the others are just the outworking, the accidentals, different forms of it? What if that me first is just written down deep? What is war after all? What is crime if they're not the accidents of that that, that inner sort of voice that says me first? And if you have land, I'll take it. And if you have stuff that I want, I'll grab it. And if your wife is more... No, that couldn't be possible. Me first. Me before you. Turns out that's it. Keep your thumb in Isaiah 53 and find in this book of Psalms, Psalm 100. We don't know whether Psalm 100 is picking up on Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 53 was picking up on Psalm 100, but it's fascinating. Listen to how the psalm writer sings it. It says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and Not we ourselves, for we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's very simple. I mean, this is really one of the reasons why it's it's not a good idea to think of sin so much in terms just of breaking the rules. You say sin is breaking God's rules. I, I mean, I suppose that's one perspective. But if you start there, here's the problem. Let's just say you... You fudged it a little bit on a test. That's nothing like robbery, grand larceny. Nothing like assault and battery. So you can actually say it's a very small sin. It seems insignificant. You're thinking of sin kind of like a pile of clay pots. And you hurl a baseball in there, and one breaks. Whoops! You just go in, you pick up the pieces, you discard them. But essentially the pile is still there, it's intact. Nobody will ever know. 
But what if sin is more like throwing a baseball through a window? Either the window is intact or it's shattered. And here's the point. God will either be God in your life, either you let him be God, or else you've decided that you will be God. Think about that in a few different ways. Either your will is law and his will is just good advice to be disregarded or regarded as convenient, or his will is law and your will is advice. What does that look like? It means I'll obey when it makes sense to me, when it feels good, when it feels right. If you say I'll obey if, what you're saying is my will, my wisdom sits in judgment over God's will and God's wisdom. And there's no in-between here. It's not like you just broke a couple of rules. The pile is basically intact. What's at stake really is God's godness. Does he get to be God? Who's the shepherd? Who's the sheep? Who's the Lord? Who's the servant? Whose will is law and whose is just advice? And you know that if you've broken the glass, if you've bent your soul, nothing is going to work trying to put it back together. There's some undeletable, sort of insignificant little microchip in my life that just cries out, I want to be God. Me first. It's the cause of human misery. Soren Kierkegaard called it the sickness unto death. He said that deep down you know, either there's a God and I owe him absolutely everything, or I will live as if I'm my own maker. And if I do so, I'm bending myself against God who made me. Gives you a sense of why he came. And you understand the scale, the scope of the problem. Who is he? Why did he come? Let's look at what he did. One more essence here. The essence of who he is, the arm of the Lord. The essence of the problem, sin, substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves in places where only God deserves to be in our lives and in the world. What then is the essence of salvation? The answer again is right here, Isaiah 53 Verses 4 to 6. It's God reversing what's gone wrong. It's God pushing us to safety before we hurl ourselves off a cliff and falling in the process. This really is the meaning of life, of salvation. It's substitution. In verse 5, you see there it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Except, you know what? In Hebrew, my failing Hebrew, I remember studying this verse and realizing that that's not actually what it says. What it actually says doesn't make sense if you put it in English, but this is what it actually says. He was pierced from our transgressions, and he was crushed from our iniquities. It's the way of saying that he was crushed as a result of. It's actually saying he was pierced as a result of something that I did. The consequences went to him. It's all over here. Have a look at verse 11. He says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many people. You know what that word justify means? Think about it. It works in English, right? 
what if, what if you make a statement and I don't like it, I'm upset to you, and I, I come to you and say, hey, that thing you just said, can you justify it? And you say, well, let me explain. And you go on and you make a bunch of points. And maybe I say, and then, okay, I understand you better. You've justified yourself. What is it that you just did? You didn't change the statement. You didn't change it a bit. Not a word. What you did is you changed my attitude towards it. You changed my relationship to what you said. What is the essence of being a Christian? Trying hard to live like Jesus? No. And that's a consequence. In fact, in most cases, it's an accident. Not accidental, but it's just the result. What's the essence? Let me show it to you. Again, keep your thumb in Isaiah 53. And find in the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, in verse 21. Here is as good a summary of Isaiah 53, of salvation itself, of the essence, as anything that you'll read anywhere in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him or through him. What does that mean? Mean to say that what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ became sin? Does it mean he became sinful? No. Mean he became wicked and nasty and awful? No. It means that suddenly he was treated by God as if he had done every bloody thing humanity has ever done. And what then does it mean to become righteous in him? I don't know what most people think. If I if I become a Christian, I'm gonna have to clean up my act. That's probably a good idea anyway, but But that's not the essence. What makes you a Christian is the moment in your life you place your trust in him and say, Father, for Jesus' sake, because of what he did in history, accept me. And in that moment, God gives you credit for everything Jesus did. You say, how could that possibly be? Well, let me show you. One of the things that comes out here clearly in Isaiah 53 is the voluntariness of the death of Jesus. The voluntariness of it. His choice. His decision. See there where it says, He took up our infirmities. Very active word. It means literally, He picked them up off of us. And He dropped them on Himself. And all those places where it says, He opened not His mouth. What's that all about? It means He died voluntarily. And maybe you say, well, plenty of people have died voluntarily. No, they haven't. Nobody died voluntarily. Not like this. Not like Jesus. You say, well, what about people on the battlefield who give their lives for others? What about people, I know it's horrific, but people who decide to to take their own life, suicide. They voluntarily died. Hear me out for just a second. In neither case did they make a choice whether to live or die. What they chose was when to die or how to die. They didn't get to choose and neither do you and neither do I. This may come as shocking revelation, but you're going to die. So am I. How's that for a takeaway? The only person who ever died who didn't have to, who wasn't a victim of death itself, who died voluntarily, 
the arm of the Lord, the servant of God. Jesus was beautiful. Voluntarily, he becomes ugly. He was vast, unlimited, eternal, and yet restricts himself to the confines of this, of flesh. He was eternal, and voluntarily, he died. An act of supreme authority, of supreme sacrifice, of supreme love. It's almost as if Jesus takes his body in one hand, his soul in the other, tears himself apart and says, I lay it down of my own accord. What does that mean? We have stories of people who die for others and they always move us, don't they? There's just something deep in our soul that tells us this is the way it ought to be. Instead of me first, you get to something that's the exact opposite. Anytime you get near it in a story, it's compelling, right? If the essence of sin is me first, salvation is you first. If the essence of sin is your life for mine, the essence of salvation is my life for yours. So when Jesus, the arm of the Lord, is dying there on the cross, what's really holding him there? Not nails. Could have called 10,000 angels. What really holds him there is his absolute resolve that he will not give up on the human race. And that means that no matter who you are or what you have done, nothing can break that for you. Now, maybe you're thinking, listen, my life, you don't know my life. I've been so inconsistent. I've been stupid. I've been foolish. I, I mess up again and again and again. And I wonder, God has long since turned his back on me. As if your inconsistency or your foolishness were going to break poor little Jesus when that wouldn't break him. When he took everything that hell itself could hurl at him, you really think you're the one who's going to break him? No way. It's a strong love. Can't possibly wear it out. Because you can't wear through it, it means means that maybe you don't have to worry so much about your looks because his great beauty has been put on you forever. Maybe you don't have to worry so much about your reputation because the only one who really matters has said, you're mine, my very own. It means that as you go out into the world, into the world, the stuff that used to bother you just doesn't trip you up anymore. It means that you may get sick. Now, let's be honest, you will get sick. But the great disease has been cured. Not only is it true that the cross will make sense of your life, the cross then becomes the pattern for your life. And that's really what we mean when we say that the church is the hope of the world. We're all just fallible, groping our way heavenward. But the more we learn to make the cross the pattern for our lives, the more we breathe hope into this generation. I mean, if there is no God, and the strong eating the weak is utterly natural, totally natural, then what warrant would you or I have to say it should be some other way? That's just the way it is. But the cross insists on something else. Instead of your life for mine, my life 
for yours. It's the heart of the gospel. We've been singing about it for three millennia. The essence of what it means to follow Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, we see here in these ancient words the essence of the gospel, the essence of what sin is, what salvation is, how we live. Thank you, Lord, that we have in you not a God who's a perpetrator of injustice, but a victim of it. A God who nevertheless makes us so rich that we can spend our own lives for others. A God who voluntarily became weak and shows us that weakness itself can be strength. Father, help us to understand these hard things, to work them into our lives, not just as individuals, but as a community together, a worshiping community, a family and a church. Shape us and mold us. Form us into the image of what we have just seen, of that great servant, the arm of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. For in his name we pray. Amen.